Give ear to the reading of God's word, Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have kept, that you have but little power, and you have, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth uh, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The sense of the reading of God toward you may be seated. Well, first, uh, I think it's First Samuel thirteen ten says, uh, it says, "Speak, O Lord, thy servant heareth." Well, let's, in that spirit, let's go to God and ask Him to teach us His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask once again that You would teach us Your Word, that we might have a right understanding of it, that You might renew our minds and transform our lives by by it, by the work of Your Spirit, that You would uh, work in us by Him and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning is the sixth of the seven letters of Christ to the seven churches that are found. Those letters are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Uh, of, of the seven churches, you might know this one, the church in Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania, uh, and the church in Smyrna, which we looked at back in, in chapter 2, are the only ones of the seven, two out of seven, receive no word of rebuke. Uh, They only receive words of commendation and exhortation. So two of the seven are not not perfect churches, but they're, they're blameless before the Lord. He doesn't have any words of correction or rebuke to them. Now that, that should get our attention, shouldn't it? I mean, they all should get our attention. After every letter, what does it say? Let he who has an ear or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all these letters apply to us in some way, whether as warnings or encouragements and whatnot. But you know, this letter, knowing that Christ only gives them commendation and praise, should kind of cause us to want to know what their secret was, so to speak. You know, what was the secret of their success? What was it about this church in Philadelphia that the Lord Jesus found so commendable and praiseworthy? Why was this little church so pleasing in his sight? Why is it? What can we do as a church to emulate them or imitate them? That should be what we think of when we read this letter and we see his words of praise and promises to them. If we have an ear, as the text says, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, I think there can't be any doubt that this letter is put here, this little church in Philadelphia in the Scripture is being kind of held out to us as an example to imitate. That's what it's there for. We should look at them and say, what, how, in what way should we be more like this church in, in Philadelphia? 
Now, what was the secret of their success, so to speak? You know, that's that's what uh, many many do when when you see a church that we think is successful. Oftentimes, uh, the pastors and whatnot they'll write books because everybody wants to copy what works. We're very pragmatic, even in the church. In some ways, that's not always a good thing. What was the secret of the church in Philadelphia's success? Well, the first thing it might strike you as odd, but the first thing about the church in Philadelphia was that it was a weak church. It was a weak church. You heard that right. They were a weak church. Jesus says to them in verse 8 that he knows their works. He tells every one of the churches that. He knows their works. And he says, and that they had, quote, but little power or little strength. It's an odd, uh, it's an odd way of, of uh, commending and praising a church. I know your works and that you are of little strength. That's this first word of, of praise. Now, in our day, maybe you've heard this phrase before, there's a lot of talk about so-called mega churches, mega churches. These churches are those are those who whose memberships total in the thousands. Sometimes some of them are even in the tens of thousands. If you can imagine such a thing, these churches seem to have everything. They have large memberships. They have large budgets. They have all of the programs, the amenities, the bells and whistles that anybody could possibly want, and they often advertise themselves in that manner. These are often the churches that other ministry leaders desire to copy and to emulate. If it's bigger, it's it's better, right? We want to copy that. These are the churches that we often think of as having influence and great power in the community and in our country. But the secret of the success of this little church in Philadelphia is that the true measure of their success was not found in any of the things that we might normally associate with quote-unquote success in ministry. They don't fit the mold. Nobody's going to write a book about the church in Philadelphia and what they did. Of course, Jesus thought quite differently. In fact, if you want to look at those things, if you want to look at the things that the world often looks at and that worldly Christians often look at as measures of success, you need look no further than the very next church in this chapter, the church in Laodicea, in verses 14 to 22. Jesus tells them they thought they were rich in verse 17, that they were prosperous, that they were in need of nothing. That's what he says. He says, you people say that you're rich and that you don't need anything. And yet his opinion of them was quite different. What does the Lord say to that successful church in Laodicea? He tells them they were lukewarm and that he was going to spew them out of his mouth if they didn't repent. Jesus' measure of success this, I think both these letters are, are put together as bookends for us to compare them and say, what is, what is Jesus' measure of success? What is the Lord pleased by? Because that's our standard. That should be our standard. Laodicea, for all their outward success, is not the church that we should emulate. And yet how many in the church today would actually see them, rather than the church in Philadelphia, as the model church? That's how we act very often. We must remember the Lord's words to the prophet Samuel when he was sent to Jesse. Remember when he was sent to anoint the new king, when he had rejected Saul? What did the Lord tell the prophet Samuel? Even the prophet Samuel had to have his eyes fixed. on the He had his eyes fixed on the wrong things. And the Lord says this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward, or excuse me, do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
Why? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? The Lord looks on the heart. He doesn't look on the visible, the measurables. You know, looking for the king of Israel wasn't like the NFL combine where you see how tall someone is, how hard they can throw, how high they can jump. The Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart itself. Now, the Lord doesn't look at things the way that we naturally tend to do. Think about that. Even the prophet Samuel had it wrong in some regards on his own. And that's true of churches as much as it is of individual Christians. This letter, like the other letters to the seven churches, teaches us that we need to learn to look at things much differently. The eyes of faith do not view things the way the world does. We need our eyes to be examined, even by this text. How, how do we look at things in the church? How do we look at success in churches and in, as individual Christians? What is the measure of your success as an individual Christian? Maybe that needs to be changed as well. What else does Jesus say about this little church in Philadelphia? He doesn't just tell them that they were weak, as odd as a compliment as that may be, or that they had little strength, but he also says in verse 8, he says, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They've kept his word and not denied his name. So despite the fact that they had very little strength or very little power, they had kept his word and had not denied his name. In other words, they were weak, but they were faithful. They were weak. They had no power of their own or very little, but they were faithful to the Lord. Isn't that, shouldn't that really be the proper definition of success in ministry for a church or for an individual Christian? They were faithful to Jesus in keeping his word. They held fast to the word of God. They believed the scriptures as the word of God. They proclaimed and held to the word of God. They sought to follow and obey the Lord's commandments in all things. However, imperfectly they did that, to be sure. They did not deny Christ's name. To borrow a phrase from an old hymn we sang a number of weeks ago, they were not ashamed to own their Lord. They were not ashamed of the name of Christ. They were faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ, even in the face of persecution and opposition, which he talks about in this letter. And that was enough, wasn't it? That was enough for Jesus. Faithfulness is what the Lord Jesus desires in his church and in his people. And a faithful church and a faithful Christian, however small and seemingly insignificant, is the kind of church and the kind of Christian that the Lord is pleased to use greatly in building his kingdom. That's what a real megachurch looks like. The measurables of a megachurch aren't measured by the numbers. They're measured by the Lord of glory working through her. And that brings us to the second thing, not just a weak church, but an open door that Jesus talks about in our text. Because of their faithfulness, despite their weakness, Jesus tells this little weak, struggling uh, church uh, that, that he had set before them in verse 8, what? An open door. He had set before them an open door. And why did he do that? Now, I, in the ESV, uh, I try not to do this too often, but the ESV doesn't make this quite as clear as I believe the New American Standard does. What is the reason that Jesus gives for giving them this open door that no one can shut? The NAS, uh, the New American Standard in verse 8 puts it this way. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I think that gives the actual sense of the original Greek text of this letter. It's because, although they were little and weak, that they were faithful and had not, uh, they had kept his word and not denied his name. That is why, that is specifically why Jesus put this open door before them. It's because they were faithful to Jesus, even though they were weak, that he put before them that open door that no one could shut. In other words, Jesus was going to use this little church for his glory in making disciples. That's what this open door is talking about. It's an open door of gospel opportunity that he had opened for them, uh, and it was one that no one can shut. It, it wasn't dependent upon their strength or their lack of weakness. You know, the scriptures often use this same kind of phrase, this picture of an open door, in the same way to, as a present opportunity that God has provided for his people to be used by him. A few examples, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 to 9, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice what he adds there. He doesn't say it was easy. He doesn't identify the open door by the lack of opposition and, and, adver- and adversity. He says uh, at, at the end there, and there are many adversaries. There's a wide door open for me for ministry. And maybe, maybe it's one of the reasons he knew it was open, was that Satan wasn't letting him uh, do it without opposition. The Lord is the one who opens doors of gospel opportunities. If he doesn't open those doors, they will not be opened. We don't get to open them on our own. And if he opens them, no one can shut them. For Jesus alone has the key of David, verse 7. Another example also from Paul is 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 13, where he writes, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, or by the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In other words, God was using him. Now, he, he left to go somewhere else for a time. Also, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul asks the church at Colossae to pray for an open door for him. He says, don't just like look for the open door. He asks them to pray for it. He says, continue, uh, Colossians 4, 2 to 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, at the same time, Pray also for us, what? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Think about that. He doesn't say, pray that God would open the door of my prison cell. That's what I would pray. That's probably what you might pray. He says, pray that God would open a door for opportunity to make Christ known. And if it happens to be through opening my prison door, I won't say no. You know, but that wasn't, that wasn't the first thing on his mind. The open door he wanted was an open door to be used by God. And even a prison door couldn't keep an open door that God gave closed for the gospel. Do you and I pray for the Lord to open doors for sharing the gospel? Do you pray for the Lord Jesus to open a door for our church and other Bible-believing churches around us to minister the gospel of Christ effectively? That's what we must do if we want the Lord to use us. Do you want to know the joy of being used by Christ in evangelism? Do you want to know that your life is making a real difference? You might remember there's an old 
quote by Ronald Reagan. He says, you know, some people go their whole lives, this is a paraphrase, wondering if they've made a difference. And he says, the U.S. Marines don't have that problem. Right. Well, the churches, in an even greater sense, the church can have that can cannot have that problem. If you want to know if your life is making a difference, pray to the Lord that He might open a door for you to be used by Him. The same thing applies to us as individual Christians as it does to local churches as well. Don't be discouraged or dissuaded by your weakness. You know that's that's what I do. That's probably what you do at times. Oh, you know I. I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm not very gifted. You know, yada yada yada. All these lists of, of excuses. You know, think about some examples from your from the scriptures. The, when the Lord told Moses that He was going to send him to Pharaoh to deliver His people from slavery in Egypt, did Moses go? Here am I. Send me. You got it. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you finally asked me. I've been waiting for 40 years out tending sheep. And finally you came to your senses and, and picked the right man. No, he gave God a laundry list of excuses, one after the other. No, oh, I think you got the wrong guy, God. He even said at one point, he told God that he wasn't eloquent enough. You know, I'm not a very good speaker. We're a lot like Moses in that regard. But the Lord told him that he was the one who made his mouth. He's like, who made, who made your mouth? Who made you the way you are, the way you speak? And then he also says... He was going to be with his mouth. And Moses, I'm not eloquent God. God says, yeah, I know. You know. I made your mouth, and I'll be with your mouth. And so he would do just fine, and God, of course, used him to deliver his people. Think of the army of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. It's a remarkable story. God actually told Gideon, oh, wait, your army is a little too big. It was, a, it was way too big. Did Gideon think his army was too big? No, Gideon was probably thinking, are you going to add some more? We could use some reinforcements, God. God's like, I got a better idea. Let's whittle this down, you know, not just a few thousand. He got it down to 300 men. He caused all kinds of Gideon's troops to flee until he had 300 men left. And only then did the Lord use Gideon and his men to deliver the Midianites into their hands. Because God gets the glory, not the army. Think about in the New Testament, the 12 disciples. You know, was there ever a, a less likely group of human beings for God to use in building his church and building his kingdom and turning the world upside down? Most of them were hicks from Galilee and fishermen on top of that. They, they weren't the rocket scientists of the world. They weren't the mighty, the powerful, the, the, the well-equipped and the geniuses, and yet Acts 17.6 says they were the ones that turned the world upside down by the grace of God and the power of God and the gospel of Christ. According to the world, they wrecked everything. They flipped everything over. Well, they, could, they didn't do that. God did, but God used them to do it. Think about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Imagine getting that letter from Paul. You know, you guys aren't that smart. You know, you know it, I know it, you know. According to worldly standards, right? Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You guys are a heck of a group, he says, you know. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose... What is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing uh, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, 
Jesus, uh, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If you noticed my emphasis when I read that three times, Paul says, God chose. This is how God chooses to do it. God chooses dumb people, not so not so great people, to shame the wise, the strong, and the powerful, and those of noble birth. God chose. God chose. God. This is the way He works. This is the way He has chosen to work. And why has God chosen to work through weak people and weak churches that no one may boast? That we don't get to say, well, you know why we're this successful, this big, whatever, having this big of, a, of an influence is because of our own whatever. It's we boast in the Lord. No one might boast in the presence of God. If you're going to boast as an individual Christian or as a church, it must be in the Lord. That God, look what God, look what God did. That should be our posture and our saying. God chooses to use the weak in order to display his own strength so that no one, not even a church, can boast. If we're going to boast, we must boast in the Lord that he himself is our strength. And so if you want to be used by the Lord, if you would like to see him open a door for gospel ministry for you that no one can shut, what do you do? It's not a long list. Be faithful to the Lord in keeping his word and bearing witness for his name. Don't be ashamed of the name of Christ. And you can be sure that he will set before you an open door as well. Our Lord in his mercy delights to use weak churches and weak Christians. And because of that, his grace, as he says to Paul, is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness, so that when we are weak, we are actually strong too, just like Paul said of himself in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Well, the last thing I want to see in our text is a pillar. He talks about a pillar in God's temple, an open door, and now a pillar in God's temple. Look at verses 9 through 12, and the promises that Jesus makes, these sweeping promises he makes to this little weak church, in Philadelphia, he says, Behold, you know, look, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who, are, who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's a lot a lot he says in there to unpack. I won't spend a lot of time on each thing, but... First, Jesus Christ, who calls himself the Holy One in verse 7. What's the Holy One? The Holy One of Israel, the King, the Messiah of Israel. He's the one who, what, has the key of David, verse 7. He's using a lot of Old Testament imagery of the Messiah, of the real King of Israel. And he's saying, you know, these people say that they're, they're Jews, but they're not. They're not serving their, own, their king. He's their king. He's the one that has the key of David. And he tells his little church here, he's going to take care of their enemies. He's the one who gathers and defends his church from all her enemies and his. And so this persecution they were enduring at the hands of unbelieving Jews, which is a very common theme in the New Testament as well as in Revelation, 
that this uh, the, the city of Philadelphia, these unbelieving Jews that were persecuting his church, would one day that persecution was going to stop. He was going to put an end to it. They called themselves Jews, but were not really Jews according to the spirit and the promise. And what does he say? One day they would bow down, or King James has worship. It's the same, the word can be used either way. A lot of times when you're worshiping, what are you doing? You're bowing down. That they would bow down at their feet. Now this can be taken at least one of two ways, possibly both. The first way this can be taken, it seems to indicate that the Lord was going to bring a number of these unbelieving Jews uh, to, to faith in Christ. He was going to bring them to conversion by his grace so that they would one day stop persecuting the church, just as Paul did, and join the church in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus often makes his enemies a footstool for his feet by the grace of conversion. He still does that. He makes those who rage against him often end up following him by his grace and mercy, even as the apostle Paul did. A second way the Lord will judge his enemies uh, who persist in unrepentance and unbelief especially those who persecute his church. On the final day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, the enemies of his church will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, we will be shown to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37, the enemies of the gospel then will learn that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us that we are his people. What a joy that will be one day to be openly vindicated by the Lord and even to share in the glory of Christ and the triumph over his enemies. That's a promise to his faithful church that that will, that will come to pass. We will not only see many of Christ's enemies bow the knee in conversion and joyfully come to him by faith, we'll also see his enemies that, that, that persist in unrepentance. We will see them judged by the Lord, and we will share in his glory in that. Not only that, but he promises this weak, faithful church that because they had kept his word, he would keep, same word, them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. A lot of the word keep keeps coming up in the text. He's saying, you kept my word, I'm going to keep you, guard you from this trial. Now, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters would have us to believe that this is a reference to the so-called rapture of the church, which they say is to happen prior to the Great Tribulation. Now, as if if that were the case, think about that for a minute. If that's what Jesus is talking about to this little church in Philadelphia, well, he's not only granted that to that church in Philadelphia who was faithful to him, as they are long since absent from the body and present with the Lord even now, he's also given that to every human being who has ever lived until now, because that event has not taken place yet. He's promising this little church, according to this view, he's promising this little church in Philadelphia, don't worry, that thing that's going to happen thousands of years from now isn't going to touch you. That's not what he's talking about. Now, do we know exactly what he was talking about? We don't. But the Lord is not promising to spare his people from hardship or tribulation here. You, you, you can't read the book of Revelation and think that that's what he's promising. It's anything but that. He's, he's promising, uh, not, he's not keeping them from the hour of testing. He's keeping them and promising to keep us through it. He's promising to keep us through it. We don't know what this hour was. Some say it was AD 70 and the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. 
Uh, we don't know if that's the case. Maybe there was some other worldwide upheaval that was to come to pass. Uh, there were plenty of those in the first century uh, in Rome. Uh, those things always come. Those things will come in this life. They always do. But the Lord promises to preserve his people through all these things and to bring us safely home. That's what he's promising. And even in the midst of those things, he promises to use his people for his glory. Speaking of our home in heaven, look at the wonderful promise he gives to us, his faithful people who conquer by faith. In verse 12, he says, he will make us, what? A pillar, a pillar in the temple of my God, so that we will never go out of it. So he promises his faithful little church, not only that he will use you, but he promises to make you a permanent fixture in God's temple. You know, God's temple is not a, not a, a building. You, as First Peter said, or the, the Apostle Peter says, that he's using us like living stones and building us up into a holy habitation for him. The house of God is the people of God. It's the place where God dwells with his people. And he's promising the faithful church uh, to be a permanent fixture in it, a pillar. You know, we're not window dressing in God's house. He's saying, you may look small. You may look like nothing in the eyes of the world, this little bitty church that can't seem to do anything, it can't seem to have any power. I'm going to make you a pillar in my house. An important part, an, emb- an enduring part of his house that we will never go out of. That's a promise that we should look forward to. Not only that, but Jesus, Jesus tells them and tells his faithful people, he will write upon us the name of his God, the name of his city, the new Jerusalem, the place where he dwells with us forever, and his own new name. He's going to write those names upon his people. In other words, you, you kept his word, you weren't ashamed of his name, and he's going to write his name on you in indelible ink, so to speak. Brand us as his own. Reminds me of Hebrews 11.16, which says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I mean, imagine, think about that. God is not ashamed to be called what? Your God. Our great hope, the hope of our usefulness, does not lie in having a great name or a great reputation, or being a lively, strong, or wealthy church, but upon having the Lord Jesus put his name upon us and call us his own. What a wonderful thing for this church in Philadelphia and any church to hear from the Lord himself. May the Lord grant that our church and many others as well might be more like this little church in Philadelphia that we read about this morning. May he make us faithful to his word, faithful to his name, and so open a door for us that no one can shut that many will come to know the Lord and worship him with us now and forever. May the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified and glorified. May he glorify his own power and strength by using weak ones like us to do great things in his strength that we might boast in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, give us grace as individual Christians here and as a church as well, that you would give us grace to although we have little strength as well, we might see ourselves very much in this particular part of the letter that you would work in us by your spirit that we might uh, that we might keep your word as well, and that we might not deny your name, and so we might have uh, by your grace and mercy towards us that you might set before us as individuals and as a church an open door that no one can shut, 
that you would use us for your glory, that we might know that you're being, that you're using us for the spread of your gospel. Let us see conversions. Uh, let us see people come to faith in Christ and have their lives changed forever. Let us see you at work through your church, through your gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Lord, we know that you, your arm has not shortened, that it cannot save. You are still as mighty to save as you ever have been. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon your churches, us as well as others, and set that open door before us. Give us grace to look for those open doors, to to, to go through those open doors, and let us uh, let you use us for your glory in making disciples, Lord. And we thank you that we have all these promises in your word that uh, you will make your people a pillar in the house, the temple of our God, Lord. We thank you that you uh, you alone do these things, and we pray that you would change us as individual Christians and as a church, that you'd work in and through us, for your glory, that we might boast in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.